Well, uh, Jesus does a lot of eating. And, uh, and I mean, that's the kind of Messiah I want. I want a Messiah who eats. And, uh, and if you read through the Gospels, all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus having meals all the time. He was constantly at a table with people, all different types of people. And really, some of the most powerful truths in all of Scripture, Jesus revealed over a meal. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the meals with Jesus. And I think this is great. Uh, this is like perfect timing as we're in this season on, on what it means to be on mission. As a church, we've been spending some time talking about what does it mean for us to be people on mission. I think we're going to learn so much about who Jesus is and his mission and what he's called us to by looking at interactions he had over the dinner table. And today... We're going to start by looking at a meal Jesus shared with a tax collector named Matthew and some of his not-so-churchy friends. And so that's where we're going to start. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Matthew 9. If you don't, it's printed in your bulletin. And I'm going to start reading in the ninth verse. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is God's word. Let's start by thinking about that last image that, that Jesus paints. Right at, right at the end of, of this meal, Jesus paints a picture of new and old wineskins. And then he also paints this picture of the wineskins bursting open. The new wine bursting through the old. And by doing this, he's telling us something about his mission. He's saying that his mission is explosive. That his mission is about newness. His mission is about bringing a new way, a new type of life. Jesus said, I've come to give people life and give life abundantly. But it requires an explosion of what has been. Have you been blown up by Jesus? In order to be on mission, in order to be on mission, we have to first be blown up by Jesus. And it really, it happens in, in three ways. And I think we can see all three of these ways at this particular meal with Peter. It happens when we're called by Jesus, when we've been cleaned by Jesus, and when Jesus has made a covenant with us. Clean, called, cleaned, covenanted. 
Um, I got to stop acting like I don't use alliterated outlines because I think this is like the fifth time I've done it. So I apologize for all the times I've made fun of pastors who do that because I like it now. So called, cleaned, and covenanted. So have you been called by Jesus? Now, before we examine that, let me tell you a little bit about Matthew. I, I love Matthew. In fact, out of all the Gospels, Matthew's the Gospel that I've probably spent the most time in. It's the one I've studied the most. And Matthew, I find, he's such an interesting guy to me. Uh, Matthew actually never speaks. There is not one gospel recording where it says Matthew says anything. We have, we have no, uh, no words that Matthew spoke ever recorded. But Matthew was this tax collector, and a tax collector um, would have been a Jewish man who worked for the oppressive Roman government. So that meant he was hated by his fellow Jews. And he was hated not only because he worked for the enemy, but because the enemy, the Roman government, also allowed him as a tax collector to put fees on top of his taxes so he could, he could really uh, get wealth off taking advantage of his fellow man. And so he was, he was in the most despised of all professions. And from what we can tell, Matthew was a really good tax collector. And Matthew was extremely wealthy. In fact, in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke, one of the other gospel writers, he, he talks about this exact same scene. He talks about Jesus calling Matthew, and he talks about this dinner that took place after Jesus called Matthew. Um, and he describes the meal at Matthew's house as being a great banquet with a large crowd of tax collectors and others. He essentially says Matthew has the means to throw a baller party. Matthew was wealthy. But now let's compare that again with how Matthew records his own calling. In verse 9 he says, As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's that simple. He just says, I just got up and I followed him. Again, in Luke's gospel, Luke also makes note, after it says Matthew got up, Luke says, and he left everything, implying that he had a lot of wealth. But Matthew, when he writes, he just simply says, Jesus said, follow me, and I did. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this text, he highlights the humility with which Matthew writes about himself. It seems as if, it seems as if all the other gospel writers want to give more details about just exactly how difficult Matthew's following Jesus was. But Matthew just makes it simple. Matthew just says, he said, follow me, and I did. Spurgeon says this. He says, all other gospel writers have more to say about Matthew than he says of himself. It is always best for us, if there's anything to be said in our own praise, not to say it ourselves, but to let someone else say it. Brother, if your trumpeter is dead, put the trumpet away. When the trumpet needs to be blown, there will be a trumpeter found to use it, but you never need blow it yourself. You see why I love this guy? I think that's great. He's saying, don't brag on yourself. And Matthew's a perfect example. Matthew had every opportunity to say how much he left behind, but he simply says, no, Jesus said, follow me, and I did. He doesn't brag. He doesn't even humble brag. I, um, I, I, just, I recently saw one of the craziest humble brags on Twitter, and it's no one who goes to this church, so, um, so I'm not, none of you are going to feel embarrassed by this. But uh, someone had posted on Twitter that they had gotten tickets, uh, him and his wife had gotten tickets to Hamilton in New York, and they were so excited, and they, they had the picture with the tickets, and they were there. And then someone else tweeted back at them, oh, man, I'm so jealous. My husband and I were trying to get tickets, but we decided to go on a mission trip instead. I was like, you can't, what? You can't say that. But anyways, 
Matthew's humility, I think, comes from Matthew's understanding of his own salvation. See, Matthew saw his salvation as a miracle. In fact, he places the story of his salvation between two incredible miracles Jesus performed. Right before this is, is the story of the paralytic man who Jesus healed. Remember the guy who, who was paralytic and, and his four best friends took him to see Jesus and the house was too crowded so they had to go up on the roof and they had to put a hole in the roof and then lower the man down. Um, so, so that's the story that happens right before this. And then on the other side of the story is the miracle where Jesus brings a dead girl back to life. So as Matthew's writing this gospel, it's almost as if he's saying, my salvation is as miraculous as a paralytic walking and as a dead girl coming back to life. See, Matthew saw his salvation as beating impossible odds. We've said this around here before, but you have not seen your salvation if you haven't seen it beating impossible odds. Matthew saw the miracle of being saved. He knew he was so unlikely. He knew he was a man so steeped in sin and injustice and in corruption. And yet when Jesus looked at him, Jesus saw an apostle. Jesus saw a writer who would write his word. Think about this. 2,000 years later, you and I are reading words that, that this sinful tax collector wrote so that we can better understand the Savior of mankind. There's no way Matthew would have imagined such would come out of him. But when Jesus looked at him, that's what Jesus saw. Have you ever thought about what Jesus sees when he looks at you? Matthew is evidence that no matter your past or your profession or your proclivities, see what I did there? Can't stop, won't stop. Um, No matter what... Jesus has big plans, and not just big plans, but impossible plans for you. Matthew shows us that. So back to the question, have you been called by Jesus? Because a new life, a new way of living, first begins with a call. My father-in-law was a pastor for many years, and now he works as a hospice chaplain. Um, And uh, and I've never met a man who... uh, who can just sit with people in their pain and and literally on the brink of death and talk about Jesus so effortlessly and winsomely. Um, But but as a chaplain in this job, um, every couple weeks he has to be on call, which, which just means that he could get a call at any point and he'll have to leave whatever he's doing and go visit a patient. It could be in the middle of the night. It could be on the weekend. Uh, We found that when we've been trying to plan family stuff on, on weekends that he's on call, we have to hold those plans very loosely because being on call means you aren't in control, that you can't control your schedule or your time. Being called by Jesus is a lot like being on call. The Bible says every Christian has been called. Romans 8:28 says and we know that in him that in I'm sorry let me say that again and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purposes. Now a lot of times we spend effort talking about that first part of the verse but did you hear what it said in the second part? It said all those who love God have been called. If you love God you have been called for his purposes not your own you aren't in control anymore. Being called by Jesus means Jesus has moved from the periphery to the center. So 
it's a little bit different than just saying like, well, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe who he is. I, I know what he did. I know he died on the cross. I know what it means to be religious, you know, in my free time. No, being called means that all of a sudden Jesus becomes the very center and the focal point. It means that like Matthew, everything else in our life comes second to him. He has to be central. He has to be in control. So when Jesus has called you, what you experience is that your priorities are completely blown up. That's the explosion. It's no longer, okay, I didn't believe and now I do believe. It's that I didn't believe and now I do believe and now I surrendered complete control of my life to Jesus. And if that means giving up everything like Matthew did, okay, I'm in. So have your priorities been blown up by Jesus? When he looks at you, he sees what he had in mind when he thought you up. And the only way, the only way he can get us to live into that mission, that mission that is so beyond anything that we could imagine for ourselves, is to go ahead and blow up everything else in our life. To say everything else has to come second. I have to be center. I have to be in control. And when that happens, you won't believe what I do. So that's first. The first thing that Jesus shows in this meal with Peter or with, with Matthew is that he calls us. That he, when he looks at us, he sees things that you and I don't see. And then second, the second thing he blows up at this dinner party has to do with cleanliness. Have you been cleaned by Jesus? Verses 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you're, if you're sick, you know, and you come in contact with someone who's well, you tend to get them sick, right? There, there's, this, there's this thing that happens, this transfer of sickness that moves from one person to the next. Well, these Pharisees, when they come and ask this question, these men aren't bad men necessarily. They're men who have been spending their entire life trying to figure out what they need to do to please God. And so for them, there was a real issue about being contaminated. They, they looked at this group of, of sinful people who, who, who they deemed as sinful people and said, I don't, I don't want to get their sin germs on me. There was a European doctor an obstetrician in the mid-1800s named um, Ignace Semmelweis. And uh, he worked at the Vienna General Hospital, which was an important research hospital at the time. And he had specific responsibilities over the maternity ward. Well, while he was in charge of this maternity ward, ward, ward uh, there was a horrendous mortality rate with, with, with mothers. In fact, one in every 10 women died after giving birth. Um, and, and this became uh, known throughout the community. In fact, it was so bad that a lot of women would go out and have their babies in the street and then go and check themselves into the hospital afterwards. And Semmelweis, as, as the doctor who's kind of in charge of this floor, tried to figure out what in the world was happening. Why was the mortality rate so high? But he couldn't figure it out. Then he took a four-month leave to visit another hospital. And upon his return, he discovered that the death rate had fallen significantly in his absence. Now, this really disturbed him, um, not that it had dropped, but it disturbed him that, that he seemed to be the problem. 
And so upon further examination, he realized that the only difference between him and the other doctors at Vienna was that he spent more time doing research on the cadavers than they did. Again, this was a very prestigious teaching and research hospital. And Semmelweis split his time in between the cadavers and doing research and being up on the maternity ward. See, up to this point, there was no concept of germs. And so going back and forth, like no one even thought about it until now. All of a sudden, Semmelweis began to develop a concept of germs, and immediately he instituted a policy requiring physicians to wash their hands thoroughly with chlorine and a lime solution before examining any live patients. And the minute that started happening, the rate went from 1 to 100. Semmelweis, after this event, said, I was the carrier. I was the problem. Only God knows the number of patients who went maturely to their graves because of me. But of course now, so many have not because of him, because of what he discovered. You see, the Pharisees, they don't realize that they're the carriers. They don't realize that they're the problem. Instead, they go about with metaphorical mask and rubber gloves on. But Jesus looks at them and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he goes on to say, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is beginning to blow up what the religious have always believed about a holy life. He begins to change in their minds what it means to be clean, what it means to be made clean. In Matthew 8, right before this, there's a remarkable incident with a leper. Uh, in Matthew 8, a leper comes and he, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now, now lepers were, were considered unclean by everyone. They had this horrific skin disease. It was highly contagious. Um, it was actually illegal for them to approach people. It was illegal for them to be around people. Lepers were not allowed to be a part of, of the worship in the temple because, because the Jewish people believed that lepers were receiving a punishment from God, that, that this was God's judgment on them. Everyone assumed lepers must have sinned in some awful way. But here's this leper. He breaks the law. He throws himself down at Jesus' feet. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And it's a remarkable request. Because first of all, it shows that the leper knows Jesus just has to want him to be clean. He says, if you will. He didn't say, like, if you do this or if you, if you recite these words or if you prayed this prayer. He just says, if you will, if you want me to be clean, I know I will be clean. And then Jesus' response to him is this, be clean. And then he touches him. Now, Jesus can just want it. Jesus can just speak it. He doesn't have to touch this man, but he does. Why is that important? It has to have meaning. Well, when he touches this man, he's actually breaking the law. It's illegal for him to touch this leper. It's against the clean laws, but he touches him and the man is healed. And here's where things blow up. Jesus doesn't become unclean. Jesus doesn't immediately go off and go through the ceremonial cleansing with the, with the priest and the Levites so that he can be made clean again. In that moment, he declares that by touching the unclean, he doesn't become unclean. See, throughout all of history, when the infected comes into contact with the healthy, the healthy gets infected. When the unclean comes into contact with the clean, the clean becomes unclean. And this is really the basis of all religion. 
You work very hard to be good. You work very hard to be good enough for heaven. And if you're going to be good enough for heaven, you have to stay away from that which is defiled. You have to stay away from from those that are immoral. You have to stay away from people who you consider unclean. But here, Jesus touches the unclean, and by doing so, he declares, nothing can make me unclean. In fact, anything and anyone I touch, anyone I connect with, anyone I have a relationship with, no matter how defiled you feel, no matter what your record, no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of yourself, no matter what's been done to you, no matter uh, how you feel stained or how guilty you are, If I touch you, I make you clean instantly. Jesus declares, you cannot defile me. My holiness will overcome any of your sin. I'm not like other religious leaders telling you that if you obey these certain rules, you can make yourself fit for God. I'm telling you, I will make you fit for God. I am cleanliness itself. When you come into a relationship with me, infection itself begins to work in the reverse. The clean begins to infect the unclean. The clean begins to infect the unclean. That's what happens when Jesus cleans us. When we come into relationship with Jesus, when we come into contact with him, it completely changes the way you and I should view the world. It says to the Pharisees, hey, there's a new way to be holy. You don't have to keep trying so hard to, to, to keep yourself clean and to distance yourself from those that you feel like are immoral. In fact, in verse 10, did you see that when Jesus goes to eat with Matthew and these other sinners, he doesn't go alone. He actually brings his disciples with him. He brings his followers See, he's blowing up something about religion. Religion creates a fragile holiness. And you don't even have to be religious, by the way. Everyone is trying to earn their self-worth. Everyone is trying to perform. Everyone's trying to feel good about themselves. Religious people are just trying to do it through religion. But the problem is our holiness, our self-worth is always fragile. We're always wondering if we've done enough. We're always second-guessing ourselves. We're seeing if we're good enough. And because of that insecurity, we stay away from certain people. We stay away from certain people that we think are going to bring us down, that are going to affect our standing. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, a secular person or a religious person, we all draw a line. We draw a line where we say, these are the good people and these are the bad people. And we want nothing to do with the bad people because we're so insecure about our own holiness or our own self-worth that we don't want them to infect us. But what Jesus says to these Pharisees, to these religious men blows up that kind of thinking. He says, wait, if I make you clean, you are clean. If I tell you I love you and that you are clean in me and that you are fit before God in me, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Now go, go and move out into the world. Go and and cross lines like I do. You and I, we can move into the world with the same non-condescending confidence Jesus had. You and I can reach out to people. We don't have to be afraid of sin germs because we know we're carriers. We know we're the problem. But that in Jesus, the clean infects the unclean. So how how do we really live into that? 
What really sets us free to know, like, that's true. We can actually really do that. We can really reach out to people who in the past, before we met Jesus, we would have had nothing to do with. Well, we get the power to live like that through the covenant Jesus makes with us. Look in verse 14. This party just keeps getting bigger. John the Baptist's disciples now show up. So you got the Pharisees complaining on one side. Then you got John's disciples coming up and they're upset too. And they say, how, can, how, how come we fast and the Pharisees fast? We stick with all the dietary laws. We do all the rituals, all the stuff. And your disciples, they don't do it. And Jesus looks at them and he says, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Jesus didn't just come to perform for us, to do some miracles, to show us the way we were meant to live, although he does that. But he didn't just come to perform. This week, I had the privilege of going and seeing uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys uh, perform his masterpiece, Pet Sounds. And, uh, and I didn't know it was a masterpiece because I'm not really musical, but the people I went with are really musical. And they're like, this is the most epic album. Like, you, you know, I was like, I just want to hear good vibrations and, you know, California girls. But uh, it was great. Um, but I, I got to tell you. Um, Brian was there to perform for us, and he didn't want anything from us. There was like, there was no, like, it wasn't like he, it, like he wanted anything back from us. He just wanted to perform for us. In fact, um, there was this one moment where, where, um, where they, they're doing God Only Knows, which is one of the, the biggest hits off the Pet Sounds album, and it was this really powerful moment, really emotional. And at the end of it, we all stood to our feet. Um, and that's one of the things I love about old people concerts is you get to sit down most of it. And, and so as uh, so we were sitting and we all stand up on our feet and everyone's applauding. And it's one of those moments where you feel like, oh man, this is going to be such a sweet moment. Like he's going to get this love from us and this appreciation. And, and this is going to go on forever. And you're so excited. And within two seconds of this standing ovation, Brian Williams goes, or Brian Wilson goes, sit down. The next song is, it was like he, he wanted nothing to do with it. It was like, I'm on a deadline. I got to get out of here. I am performing for you. I don't need you to clap for that song. I know it's great. I don't need you. Let's just get this over with. Um, and so he was there solely to perform for us. In fact, there was one point in his, uh, uh, in his finale, in his, in his uh, last song, he was playing the piano. And at two times, he looked at his watch um, it was great. It was so wonderful. But anyways, uh, Jesus wants a relationship with us. And, and he wants one that's so permanent and so intimate that it can only be compared to that of a marriage relationship. And so when he says the bridegroom is here, um, he's saying that's the kind of relationship that I came to bring. And it's the kind of marriage commitment that, that really is about him being faithful to his bride, no matter what his bride does. In fact, there's a place right before this where he quotes Hosea 6.6. He looks at the Pharisees and he tells them, this is in verse 13, to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea. And then he talks about being a bridegroom. I have to believe that Jesus knows that we're going to make a connection between what he's saying and the Hosea story. If you know the Hosea story, Hosea is one of the Old Testament prophets. And a lot of times prophets were asked of God to do outrageous things to kind of illustrate a point. 
And Hosea got asked a real doozy. At the very beginning of Hosea, it says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea gets told, Go, go marry this woman who's going to break your heart, who's going to cheat on you, who's going to be unfaithful. And she was. She was unfaithful time and time again. In fact, at one point, she just leaves them. She says, I've had enough. My lovers are, are better providers than you are, so I'm going to go with them. And after a bit of time, those lovers end up turning her into a slave. And at that point, God comes back to Hosea and he says to him, he says, all right, I want you to now go and, and buy your wife back. And she's a slave and I want you to buy her back. Now, I can imagine that Hosea would be thinking, are you kidding me? Like, I've been humiliated by this woman. My heart's been broken time and time again. Can you imagine all the times I've had to preach to a group and, and look out and wonder who's been with my wife? Like, do you really want me to go and buy her back? And God says, yes, I do. And then we're told he buys her back for 15 shekels. We're told he takes off his cloak and, and covers her. And then he grabs hold of her and he says to her, now you'll be my wife again. When Jesus says he is the true bridegroom, He's saying he's the truer Hosea. He's showing us a picture of the covenant he is making with us. A covenant that says, no matter how faithful you are to me, I will always be faithful to you. But his covenant didn't just mean that he had to go to the next town and buy us back. He had to go from heaven to earth. And keeping his covenant to us didn't just mean he had to reach in his pockets and pull out a few coins, but he had to stretch out his arms on a Roman cross. And him keeping his covenant with us didn't mean he just had to take off his cloak to cover our shame. No, he had to be stripped naked. Jesus had to take all of our sins so that you and I could be clothed in his righteousness. That's what it meant when he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to be your bridegroom. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, through him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. Does that covenantal love change us? Of course. It changes everything. When we've been loved that way, when we've experienced that kind of grace, how in the world can you and I draw any lines between good and bad people? If there's a line, according to the Bible, the humble are always in. The people who know they're hypocrites, the people who are inconsistent, who know they're sinners needing grace, people like Matthew are in. But the proud are out. But yet still, the proud only need to admit their pride and they're in. When Jesus came and when he had this meal with Matthew, he said, I'm blowing up everything. I'm showing you a new way to have life. I'm going to call you, I'm going to clean you, and I'm going to make a covenant with you that will change everything. If he's done that for you, you'll cross any line. There won't be anyone that you look at and you say, that person is beyond the grace of Jesus. And not only that, you'll look at them and you'll say, I want to invite you to meet him. Matthew could not wait to invite Jesus to meet his friends. Why? Because he's awesome. Look at what he did. Look at what he continues to do. 
When you came into service today, uh, you got a, a little card about Easter. Who's the one person that you've been thinking about or praying about or knowing you should be praying about inviting to church? Give them this and invite them to a meal. Um, and, and as always, whenever we give these things out, please don't leave this as a tip. Um, but but who, who needs to know about a Jesus like this? And for those of you at 33rd, I know you can't invite people into your services, uh, but if you've got family or friends on the outside, invite them here. We would love to welcome them in. But if we, like Matthew, experience Jesus the way Matthew did, we can't help it. We can't help but invite others to meet him. Now, I know some of you here maybe don't believe. Um, maybe you're thinking about it. You're thinking about uh, what you think of Jesus. And so the idea of, of surrendering complete control to him um, is just crazy. Um, and I want to talk specifically to you because I think there's something really powerful in this passage. In verse 13, which I quoted a little bit earlier, Jesus looks to the people who are questioning him and he says to them, go and learn what this means. Go examine what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I love this. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not looking at the people who don't believe, who are questioning him and saying, you need to take me at face value. He's saying, go, go wrestle with these questions. He's giving them homework. He's saying, you go and take as much time as you need to figure out who I am. Christianity is a thinking religion. Christianity is more than thinking, but it's not less. And Jesus is saying to those who question him, this might not make sense to you right now. It probably won't. So go and think about it. We sat around here for a long time that we hope this is a place where you can come and wrestle with questions about Jesus and that you feel completely free and safe to take as much time as you need, but no longer than is necessary. Living a new life in Jesus is worth your best thinking. And for those of us who follow Jesus, my hope is as we begin to move towards this Easter season is it will actually take some time to really remember when Jesus exploded into our life. Remember what it felt like to be called, to have our priorities shifted, to have Jesus move to the center where all of a sudden all that extra stuff didn't seem to matter as much as, as following him. What it felt like to know that when Jesus looks at you, he sees something beyond what you could see in yourself. What it felt like to know that you've been made clean, that no matter what you've done, no matter if you mess up again tomorrow, that, all, that in Jesus, you are wiped clean. That when he looks at you, he doesn't see filth and dirty. He just loves you. He clothes you in his righteousness. And remember what it means that he's made a covenant with you. That no matter how you keep up your end of the deal, he will always be faithful to you. That like Hosea, he will buy you back again and again and again. And I really believe if we remember these things, especially as we move towards Easter, he will open up opportunities again and again for us to invite others to know him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that in Jesus uh, we have a new way that no longer is everything up to us and our own abilities and our own effort, but that we can just surrender and say, I follow you and, and I trust that you'll show me what I need to do. Father, I thank you for the freedom 
that we have in the gospel that Jesus came to bring. And so I pray for each of us. I pray for those in this room that, that are still wrestling with if that's true. I pray that, that you will speak in their wrestling. And Father, I pray that you will put people on our hearts who need to hear this, who need to know that, that they can be free, that there's a new way to live. So Father, I pray that even in this time, as we leave this place, you will begin to bring new things to life. And we pray all of this in the one who died for us and rose from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.